Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary, Port St. Lucie. Let's join lead pastor Mike Wiggins with the message, The Need for Purity. All right, well, we are in the middle of Christ's seven letters to the seven churches there in Asia Minor, and today we're going to tackle the third letter, Jesus' letter to the church of Pergamum. Now, all seven of these churches were in need of something that would help them become stronger as a church. And so we saw three weeks ago that the church of Ephesus, even though it was a solid church, even though it was a church that was sound doctrinally, they had a big problem. They left their first love. And so the church of Ephesus, we saw they had a desperate need for a renewal of passion. Then last week, we saw the church of Smyrna under intense persecution from the Roman government there at the end of the first century AD. And so they desperately needed hope. Jesus Christ, the risen one who was martyred and came back to life, gave them, the church of Smyrna, that hope. Today, we're going to look at the letter of Jesus to the church of Pergamum, and we're going to see today that the church of Pergamum was tolerating impure doctrine and living, therefore, they were in desperate need of purity. So before we get to all that, let's go back to our map. We do this every week. And you see that Pergamum was about 45 to 50 miles north of last week's church, Smyrna. Pergamum um, is about 15 miles inland from the Aegean Sea there in modern-day western Turkey. And so you remember that all seven of these cities uh, that had the churches that received this these letters from the Lord, they were all connected by a Roman road. Um, the Romans, of course, famous for building their roads. And so um, uh, this Roman road acted like a trade route or a postal route. It, it connected Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So today, if you visit the ancient um, city of Pergamum, what you're actually going to find is the modern city of Bergama. Uh, Bergama. Bergama with a B. And um, if you visit Bergamum, you'll actually be able to tour all the ancient ruins from ancient Pergamum. And it was the um, Roman author Pliny who said, quote, Pergamum is by far the most distinguished city in Asia. Now, there's lots of reasons why Pergamum was so distinguished there at the end of the first century AD. First of all, it was distinguished because of its location. And so Pergamon was located on top of a hill about 1,000 feet above the plain below. And so you could see the city from miles around. It was distinguished because of its location. It was distinguished because of its politics. I don't know if you know, knew this, but Pergamon for over, get this, 250 years was the Roman capital in the Roman province of Asia Minor. 250 years. I mean, we're not even that old as a nation yet. So think Washington, D.C., and that's the distinguishment uh, that Pergamum had there in A.D. 95. And so not only was it distinguished in location and politics, it was also distinguished in education. Pergamum boasted of the second largest library in that time. Of course, the Library of Alexandria would be the largest library, but Pergamum had a library that boasted over 200,000 handwritten volumes. And this library was so impressive that Mark Antony, the Roman general, when he saw it, he was so impressed, and the, and the, the books that I read this week said he didn't ask anybody's permission. I guess that, that's what you can do when you're a Roman general. He packed up the whole library, and he sent it to his lover, queen, um, the queen of Egypt, Cleopatra, there at the end of the first century. So distinguished, location, politics, education. Pergamum also distinguished in athletics. And so one of the pictures that you saw, you saw that theater that had been excavated from the first century. And so that theater, of course, was alive and well, and it was a center for entertainment there in 1895. And then finally, and sadly, Pergamum was distinguished for its religion, temples, Everywhere as you walk through the city, 
And I remember Paul walking through Athens, and Paul said his spirit was grieved because he saw all the idolatry. Well, that's how Pergamum was as well. And so there was all these temples to the Greek gods and goddesses. There was all of these sacred groves. There was all these altars everywhere that you could see there in Pergamum. So right smack dab in the middle of all this idolatry, immorality, and corruption, God had his people, the church, the church of Pergamum. So we're going to read his letter now to these people, starting in verse 12. It says, and to the angel, and you remember in the original language, angel can also be translated messenger. So to the messenger in the church of Pergamum, right, the words of him who has the sharp, two-edged sword. Jesus introduced himself to this church as the one who has the sharp, two-edged sword. Okay, so what in the world is the sharp, two-edged sword? Hebrews tells us. Hebrews 4, verse 12. For the, what's the next three words? The word of God. It's that thing you got pulled up on your mobile device or opened up before you. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. Ladies and gentlemen, you've heard me say it a thousand times, but the book that you have opened up before you is unlike any book in the entire world because it's been breathed out by God. It is the word of God, and it is alive, and it's active, and it discerns, another word for discern is judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so there's Jesus, the resurrected, glorified Christ, and he's introducing himself to the church of Pergamum, and he says, I'm the guy, I'm the one who has the sharp, two-edged sword. And he's going to use the word of God to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the people of Pergamum. So he says there in verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. So let's stop right there. Some people think that Satan's throne right now is in hell. And there's the devil sitting in hell with his pitchfork, flames shooting up all around him as he laughs with some kind of hideous laugh or whatever. Hey, nothing could be further from the truth. Now, we know from scriptures that one day, Satan will be cast alive into the lake of fire. Okay, that will happen after the millennium. But let me tell you something. When that happens and he goes into the lake of fire, I guarantee you, Satan will not be ruling over anybody or anything. The devil right now, though, is not in hell. Because the Bible says in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And so ever since Lucifer was kicked out of heaven for his rebellion against God with a third of the angels, he has been roaming the earth round and round and round, generation after generation, with one main intention, and that is to destroy humanity. Jesus said the thief comes not uh, but to kill and, to, and to, to, to destroy, but I've come to give life, the Lord said. And so the devil wants to rip you off. The devil, and I believe he wants to kill all humanity, destroy all humanity, but how many of you guys know he has a special target on the back of God's people? And he wants to destroy you. And so you gotta be sober, you gotta be vigilant. Because here's the problem, some of you have wandered from the flock of the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, and you're playing around out here somewhere, and if you're not careful, the devil's going to pick you off. you got to get back under the protection and the care of the good shepherd. And so in AD 95, the devil's throne, his authority, could be seen everywhere you looked in Pergamum. I'm just gonna give you three examples of Satan's influence in Pergamum, which is very relevant to the letter that Jesus writes to this church. Okay, and so the first way that we could see Satan's influence in Pergamum is emperor worship. So we already talked about this last week. 
You remember in AD 95, it was required that if you lived in the Roman Empire, you had to go once a year with your little pinch of incense, and you had to burn it in some kind of religious ritual before a statue of Caesar. And by the way, the Jews would never do this who lived at the end of the first century because they knew the one true God, Yahweh. There's no way they're gonna um, do idolatry, get involved in idolatry, and Judaism was one of the official religions that was tolerated by the Roman Empire, and so Jews had a pass. But if you're a Christian, you're a Gentile, you're living in the end of, of the first century, every, every year, once a year, you had to burn your little pinch of incense and you had to say, Caesar is Lord! And then the Roman guard will give you another certificate for another year. Now, it's called the imperial cult. It's very real. Thousands and thousands and thousands of Christians were martyred because they would not burn the pinch of incense and say Caesar is Lord. And so um, that's one way that we see Satan's influence there in Pergamum because especially in Pergamum, the imperial cult, imperial cult was, was, was huge because in AD 26, I'm sorry, um, uh, 26 BC, okay, so going uh, 26 years before the, the time of Christ, the Romans actually built a temple in Pergamum to honor Caesar Augustus. And so right there in Pergamum, we see the influence of Satan. Another way you could see the influence of Satan in Pergamum was the worship of Zeus. And so on the Acropolis in Pergamum, there was this massive altar surrounded by huge columns to honor Zeus, the supposed supreme ruler of the gods. Now here's what's fascinating. Pastor Jacob told me about this like a, a two weeks ago, and sure enough, as I'm studying, I, I come across this. And so what happened was in the 18th, I'm sorry, in the 19th century, archaeologists went to Pergamum there in western Turkey, and they found that these ruins of this uh, culture in the first century um, was just being polluted, and so there's like, they actually started to dig down. You guys know the farther you go down um, in, in archaeology, um, the farther back in history you go. Well, guess what they excavated? The altar of Zeus in Pergamum in the 19th century. And you know what they did? They excavated it, and they dismantled it, and they sent stone by stone of the altar of Zeus to Berlin, Germany, to the Museum of Pergamum. And so right now, which by the way, the Museum of Pergamum opened in 1930. So right now, we had somebody in first service that was there. Um, right now, you can go to Berlin, Germany, you can go to the Museum of Pergamum, and there are the actual stones of the altar of Zeus in that, um, in that museum, the Museum of Pergamum, and so I continued to dig, and this is when um, I started to say, I gotta stop because, man, I don't have enough time for all this, but Albert Speer, I'll just say this, Albert Speer, a Nazi architect, he was the chief architect of the Nazi party, he goes into the Museum of Pergamum, which opens its doors in Berlin in 1930, and he sees this, and he gets inspiration to build the massive grandstand in Nuremberg where they held the Nazi political rallies. And Adolf Hitler himself would go to this reconstructed altar that was inspired from the altar of Zeus. And there's Adolf Hitler in Nuremberg in one of his night rallies. You can watch footage of this. And you see the Nazis with their torches and you see the searchlights and you see um, Hitler coming down the stairs where Zeus once was in the first century and he begins to rant like a madman that he was. And so, um, amazing. The altar of Zeus, many scholars believe this is why Jesus said this place is the throne of Satan. I tend to think it was more than that. I think his influence could be seen in lots of places in Pergamum. And so you have emperor worship you have the worship of Zeus, and then you also have the worship of Asclepius. Asclepius, the supposed god of medicine and health. And guess what the symbol of the god Asclepius was? The serpent entwined on a staff, the same exact, um, the same exact symbol that we have in the field of medicine today. 
And so this, if you don't like snakes, you can just go la, 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 la at this part, okay? But there was a temple in Pergamum to Asclepius, and so you would go to this temple if you had a sickness or physical ailment, and what you would do, because this is the god of medicine and health, is that you would lay down on the floor in this altar and in this temple, and they literally allowed snakes to slither around all across this temple, non-venomous snakes. And the snakes were thought to have healing powers. I know right now I'm making some of you guys so just jittery as you're thinking about this, but you would lay down and you would hopefully fall asleep and while you were sleeping, hopefully one of the snakes would crawl over you and then the Asclepius, the god of medicine and health, would heal you. And so you see Satan's death grip on the people in this corrupted city. And right again, smack dab in the middle of all this corruption, you have God's people, the church, the church of Pergamum. And to these believers who lived in the middle of all this corruption, look at what Jesus says now in verse 13. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast, what's the next two words? My name, the name of Jesus Christ which by the way is so offensive in our culture. Have you noticed that? You can say anything. You can, you can say the name of any God, little g, at work or in culture. Say the name of Jesus Christ, people start getting uncomfortable. There's power in that name. And so these people, they held fast to Jesus' name and he says, you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas. Now, there's church tradition teachings about Antipas. I like dealing with facts, so I don't wanna go on and on about church tradition, and so this is what we know for sure about Antipas. Jesus said, he's my faithful witness who was killed among you, martyred for the faith, where Satan dwells. Here's your next point. In the church of Pergamum, the majority was faithful, even though they were surrounded by a corrupt culture. And so the majority of people in the church, they held fast to the name of Jesus. And they held fast to the faith of Jesus, even though they were surrounded by immorality and idolatry and, and temples to various gods and all this corruption. And so because they were faithful, the majority of people in the church, Jesus is like, man, I commend you for doing that, I commend you for holding fast to my name and my faith. And so what you need to know is that just like Satan was hell-bent on corrupting the culture at the end of the first century, you need to know this, saints, that Satan is still hell-bent on corrupting our culture, the culture that we live in. Have you noticed this? And so, Satan's influence on our culture. You may not see temples to different Greek gods and goddesses all over our, our, our city or our state or our nation. You may not see that, but you still see Satan's influence in our culture. And it can be seen in things like the breakdown of the traditional family. I mean, what has happened in our nation? It used to be, by and large, mom, dad, committed, even if they didn't like each other, they stayed together. And the kids were raised up in a home with a mom and a dad. That used to be the majority, that's the minority now. And so we see Satan is, who's hell-bent on destroying our, our culture, that, that, that he, uh, his, his, his influence is seen in the breakdown of the traditional family. We see Satan's influence in the legalization of homosexual marriage in our country. We see it in the abortion of our babies, in the apostasy of the church, in the secularization of our schools, in the crime in our streets, in our inner cities, in the immorality, the pervasive immorality that's throughout our inter entertainment industry. It's everywhere you look. And also the perversion that's all over the internet. And if you're not careful, all over those things that you, 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 you lifted up just a little while ago, it's everywhere you look in our culture. And by the way, if you're offended by anything that I just said, 
is part of Satan's influence, then I know something about you. I know that you're in love with the world and the love of the Father is not inside of you. That's what I know about you. And you say, well, how do you know what's in my heart? It's not me, it's the word of God. John says, do not love the world. Now he's not talking about planet Earth. God made planet Earth, we all love planet Earth. Right, I'm an environmentalist. I fill up my green can every, every week and I pull it out on the street just like you do. I love planet Earth, I think it's beautiful, I think it's great, I think it's fallen, I can't wait till Jesus comes back and restores it, but, I, but, but, but planet Earth is not what he's talking about. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father, here it is, is not in him. Okay, so what's the world? He says, for all that is in the world, here it is, the desire of the flesh, that's your sin nature, your selfish sin nature desires, and the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life, that's why Lucifer got kicked out of heaven, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. It's talking about the world system. And the world, guess what? It's passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so the corrupt world of the first century, eventually, guess what happened? It passed away. You go to Bergama in western Turkey, and what do you, what do you find? The ruins of the, the, the letter that we're reading, the ruins are under the ground. That world's gone, and everybody who loved that world has perished. And it's the same thing today in the 21st century. Our world, our culture, the one that we see all around is gonna pass away if the Lord chooses not to come back in our lifetime. It's gonna pass away and everybody who's in love with this world is also gonna perish. And so the question is, will you be different? Will you be like the majority of believers in the church of Pergamum that held fast to the name of Jesus and held fast to the faith of Jesus even in the midst of immorality and corruption and idolatry? So even though there was a faithful remnant, the majority of the people were faithful, there was a minority that was unfaithful in this church. They were acting just like the world was acting. Jesus called them out. So check out now verse 14. He says, but I have a few things against you. You have, what's the word? Some, okay, there's your minority right there. It's not a majority, thank God it's not a majority. It shouldn't exist at all, but by the way, but you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak, that's the king of Moab, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Here's your next point. In the church of Pergamum, the minority was unfaithful, believing false doctrine and engaging in immorality. There were some who had infiltrated the church and they held to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Went around teaching, sharing it in their life groups in Pergamum. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And then you also had some who were just as dangerous who held to, taught the doctrine of Balaam. Okay, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna spend much time on Nicolaitans because we already did three weeks ago when we talked about the church of Ephesus. And so if you remember, if you were with us, the, the, the Nicolaitans were the um, antinomians of the day. Um, the antinomian, the word means against the law. Okay, and so these are quote unquote believers. They're not genuine. They're not really born again. And so these are so-called so believers who, who they believe that hey, God's a God of grace and so it doesn't matter if I keep the moral law of God. The Ten Commandments, who cares? I can live however I want. I can engage in sins of the flesh. It won't bother my spirit. I can still, um, you know, have a relationship with God. Antinomian. By the way, there's still lots of antinomians today. 
who abuse God's grace. Jesus said, you're tolerating it in your church, and it's got to stop. Then he said, there's another group in this church who are tolerating and they're engaged in the, the doctrine of Balaam. And so um, the story of Balaam, you don't have to turn there. It's in Numbers 22 through 25. I'll just summarize it for you. And so in Numbers 22 through 25, here we are in the Bible, and there's Moses, right? He's leading the nation of Israel out of Egypt all the way up to the promised land, the land of Canaan. And so on the way, if you can think about a biblical Old Testament map, you got Egypt down here in, in north, um, uh, northeast Africa, and then you got the promised land right here, right? And so there's nations um, in between Egypt and Canaan, Canaan land, and so the nation of Israel, which was huge, was causing these other uh, pagan nations to shake in their boots. And the reason they were shaking in their boots is because um, of Israel's sheer size and strength. And one of the nations that was afraid of Israel was the nation of Moab. And so Balak was the king of Moab, and he's standing on a mountain, and he looks out, and he sees the, 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 the children of Israel, and they're like the, the, the number of grains of sand on the seashore, and he's nervous. He knows that Israel just took care of the Amorites, lickety-split. He doesn't want to be next on the hit list. And so he doesn't want Moab to be defeated by Israel. So what does Balak do? Those of you guys who are reading through your Bible every day, systematically, you remember this story. He hires a false prophet, a guy named Balaam. Remember the talking donkey? You can go back and read it later this week, Numbers 22 through 25. And he wants Balaam to stand on a mountain looking over the nation of Israel. He wants Balaam to pronounce curses over the Hebrews, the children of Israel. And so at first, God tells Balaam, don't go. And now Balaam uh, says, no, I can't go. But, you know, he begins to think about it. And they're dangling some money. And he's a false prophet. And false prophets always like money getting rich, right? And so finally, the next thing you know, even though the donkey is trying to stop him <laughs> and talking back to him, there's Balaam, to make a long story short, he's standing on the mountain, he's ready to curse Israel. You guys remember what happens? Every time he tried to curse Israel, what came out of his mouth? Blessings. Blessings upon the people of God. I think it happened four times. And by the way, quick side note, it's not in the notes. Genesis 12.3 is just as relevant today as, as it's ever been, where God says concerning the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And so, ladies and gentlemen, America more than ever needs to stand with Israel, and the church needs to stand with Israel. Now, now here's what's sad, and I thank God that you guys are clapping, I really do. I love the people of Calvary. I love the people of Calvary Chapel. But here's what breaks my heart, is that more and more evangelical churches in America are turning their back on Israel. And they're coming up with these false doctrines to justify turning their back on Israel. And it's not right. They need our support. And when Balaam was standing there, he's trying to curse Israel, but nothing but blessing is coming out. And Balak now is furious. He storms off. Balaam's sinking I'm not gonna get paid for this, <laughs> right? And he may chop off my head. And so we know from Numbers 31 that Balak goes, I'm sorry, Balaam goes to Balak and he says, okay, let me give you some advice, sinister advice. He says, if you can't curse Israel, corrupt Israel. Balak, here's what you gotta do. You need to send some beautiful women from Moab into the camp of Israel. Because Balaam knew that if attractive women came into the camp of Israel, that the men of Israel would end up being lured into doing things they should not do. You guys know what I'm talking about? Just like when you go fishing this Saturday and you got your beautiful, shiny lure there, and it's there, and here comes that fish. And what does that fish see? Woo! 
that, that's pretty. I got to get me some of that. <laughs> right? Next thing you know, whoop. And the next thing you know, oh, no, there's a hook. There's always a hook. And there's the fish going up to a place he doesn't want to go. Next thing you know, he's being served at Red Lobster. <laughs> right? And so the exact same thing happened to the children of Israel, the men of Israel. The Bible says, while the Israelites were camped at Axia Grove, some of the men defiled themselves by having sexual relations with the local Moabite women. And these women invited them to attend sacrifices to their gods. So the Israelites, can you see them there? Throwing them back. Feasted with them and worshiped the who? After everything Yahweh had done for them and delivering them from their slavery in Egypt. After everything he was gonna do for them by giving them the promised land. This is how they pay God back? And so Israel joined in the worship of Baal causing the Lord's anger to blaze against his people. And as you continue to read the narrative there in the Bible, it says that God's judgment came upon Israel and 24,000 Israelites died in a plague. And so Jesus said, hey, Church of Pergamum, you got some people there. They're a minority, but it's still a problem. And they're holding on to the doctrine of Balaam. What's the doctrine of Balaam? It's the union of God's people with the world. And so the Bible is very clear. It says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what portion or accord has Christ with Baal? And he says, go out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Don't touch the unclean thing, and then I'll welcome you. I'll be a father to you. You'll be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And by the way, if you're taking notes, that's 2 Corinthians chapter six. And so what happened in 1500 BC to the Israelites happened in AD 95 to the church of Pergamum. Now, I really, really wanna make sure that I exegete this text clearly. So I'm gonna read this next portion to you, but if you're with me, can you say amen here? Amen. Okay, here's what Jesus was saying. Just like the Israelites had sexual relations with the Moabite women and later ended up feasting with them and worshiping the gods of Moab, in the same way, the church of Pergamum, some of them had sexual relations with local unbelievers and they later ended up feasting with them in whatever temple to whatever Greek god or goddess and they were worshiping those false gods. That's what was happening. And that's why Jesus called them out. One of my favorite preachers of all time, uh, Chuck Swindoll, he said this about this text. In similar fashion, the Balaamites and Pergamum encouraged idolatry and sexual immorality fueled by selfishness and greed and lust. Now here's what I can't understand. The leadership in Pergamum didn't do anything about it. The pastors, the elders, they just let this small minority of people who had the doctrine of the Nicolaitans and people who had held to the doctrine of Balaam, they let them continue on in their church. And I'm thinking this week, why? Why didn't the pastors do something? Why didn't they exercise a little bit of church discipline in this church? And the only thing I could come up with is that maybe they thought calling sin, sin was unloving. Maybe they thought warning people about sin and its consequences is mean-spirited, and that's why they didn't do anything. And I, I really think that calling sin, sin, and warning people about sin and its consequences is not mean-spirited, it's the most loving thing a pastor could ever do for his flock. The most loving thing. Hey, if you're going down 95 and you see a big, um, a, a big arrow going, move over, move over, move over. And you decide, ain't nobody gonna tell me what to do. <laughs> and you stay in your lane, you stay in that lane. Guess what, two miles down the road, you're gonna hit a wall. 
And so the most loving thing our government can do is to put those arrows out there and that construction stuff out there, right, to preserve life. And so the most loving thing I could ever do, and I try to do it in love, I really do, but the most loving thing I could ever do is to say, if you're involved in sexual immorality or if you're involved in idolatry, you've got to repent. You've got to turn away from that garbage because the one who has the sharp two-edged sword is standing at the door of this church just like he stood at the door of the church of Pergamum and he will absolutely judge those who decide to live that lifestyle in an unrepentant way. I'm just trying to be clear because I don't want to stand before the Lord someday like the leaders of the church of Pergamum and have to give an account for why we allowed certain stuff to happen among the people of our church. And so I in order to be as clear as possible, okay? I don't think anybody this week is gonna go down to a pagan temple and start feasting with idolaters. Now, you may go down to the club in West Palm Beach holding your beer or martini while everybody's dancing like they're having sex. You may stand there. I don't know how you can do that, by the way, if the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. I pray that Holy Spirit would convict you. I pray that you'll feel such heartburn in your soul if you're going down to those places. Pardon the bad English, but ain't nothing good happens in those places. Just like nothing good happens after midnight. Right? And so, I don't think anybody's gonna go down to some temple of some Greek god and start feasting with pagan worshipers or having sex with temple prostitutes as an act of worship to whatever Greek God. I don't think it's gonna happen here in our culture. But if you're engaging in sex outside of marriage, it's just as wrong. And you gotta turn away from that. Hebrews 13, four says, marriage is honorable among all, and the marriage bed is undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. That's written to the church. And so fornication, pornea in the Greek, that's not, that's not just physically having sex before you get married. That could be looking at pornography. And so stay away from that garbage. I don't think anybody's going to go and kneel down before Zeus and worship Zeus this week. But if you hold anything in your heart in higher regard than Jesus, if you love anything, more passionate about anything or anyone more than Jesus, that's idolatry. And I plead with you to repent. You see, immorality and idolatry is wrong no matter when it takes place, where it takes place, first century, 21st century. And so here's the good news. If, if you will repent, you have a God of second chances who loves you, who's waiting to forgive you, waiting to restore you and fulfill his great plan for your life. And so verse 16. Therefore, because of immorality and idolatry, because of toleration of these things in the church, he says, therefore, repent. If not, Jesus said, I will come to you, okay, you may want to underline you soon, and war against who? Them. That's an interesting play of words, but it's theologically correct, okay, because John talks about how, you know, you can't truly be born again and continue to practice sin and not repent. And so, look at it again in verse 16. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you, born-again Christians, majority in the church of Pergamum, and war against them, the minority, who I don't think they were saved. Jesus is not going to war on his children. He'll chastise his kids if we get out of line. He's not going to war on us. But he will war against unbelievers, whether they sit in a church or not. You say, I believe, I believe. The devils believe and tremble. Jesus said, by your fruits, they shall know you. And so I will come to you soon and war against them, 
with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, verse 17, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, or the word is overcomes, I will give some of the, note this, hidden manna, and I will give him, a, note this, white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except he who receives it. And so last week we saw, very important, that in 1 John 5, 4 and 5, the one who overcomes the world is the one who's been born of God. Okay, if you guys remember that, can you say amen here? Okay, so it's not talking about try real hard, try harder, try harder, and hope you make it. If not, see you later. You know, you're gonna be burn, burning forever. No, 1 John 5, 4 and 5, the one who overcomes the world, who's, he's been born, she's been born of God, born again, born spiritually. Okay, and so for that guy, that girl, who's been born of God, who overcomes the world, Jesus promises hidden manna. What, is, what in the world's hidden manna? It's Christ who sustains and gives us life. And so if you remember from, the, from Exodus, uh, right, for 40 years, every morning in the wilderness wanderings, the children of Israel would go out into the desert and they would scoop something up from the ground. You guys remember what it was? Manna. The word manna means, what is it? <laughs> they didn't know what it was. It was this honey-tasting bread and it gave them life and it sustained them in their wilderness wanderings. And so Jesus is saying, in the same way, if you'll come to me, I'll give you life. I will sustain you because I am the bread of life. I'll give you life. Man, if you turn from your sins and you, you look at me as your only hope of salvation and, and you receive me as your Savior and Lord, I'll give you spiritual life. The Holy Spirit will come inside of you and now you'll have a supernatural power to overcome the world. And not only that, I will sustain you through the hard times. I mean, all hell could be breaking loose in your life and all these trials and difficulties and, and, and hard things are happening and, and, and you, you, you have this peace inside of you that surpasses all understanding and a joy unspeakable and full of glory and you're actually kind of smiling as things are going, going south and people are wondering, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you coming unglued? Why aren't you freaking out? And all you can say is, Jesus sustains me in the middle of the storm. He gives me strength. I can't explain it, but I have the hidden manna. You don't know anything about it. I have it. You see that? That's what Jesus gives. He's real. He's real. He's real. And he says, I'll give you a white stone. Okay, so a white stone. What in the world is that? It's an invitation to feast with Christ. So just so you know, there's lots of really good, solid Bible commentators that have differing views on the white stone. And so um, here's what I believe, okay? After their athletic games, the Romans would give the winners of those games, those events, a white stone. They'd give them the wreath, right? They got that, kind of like in our Olympics. But they'd get a white stone. What was the white stone? The white stone was a ticket to the awards banquet afterwards and they'd have their name inscribed on the white stone. Jesus said, he who overcomes, I'll give you a white stone with a new name written on it. And so here's my opinion, okay? And again, there's lots of good guys who say it's, it's, it's different things, but here's my opinion. I believe the white stone will be given to us and it'll be our ticket into the marriage supper of the Lamb. You see, here's what's beautiful, listen to this. At some point, we don't know the day or the hour, we don't ever, we never, ever, ever, you'll hear this this Saturday, ever, ever, ever make dates about the Lord's return. But one day he's gonna come back, because he said he's gonna come back. And, and the true church, genuinely born again people, will be snatched up, will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and then we will go into the marriage supper of the Lamb to feast with Christ. I believe that we'll be given a white stone and we'll have a new name written on it. You're gonna get a new name written down in glory. You say, what's the name? Jesus said, we don't know yet. I'm gonna get a new name. I hope it's Luke. <laughs> and here's why. I don't have any sisters. I have two big brothers. Matthew, Mark, and then they named me Mike. 
I'm thinking, you guys, you guys read the Bible, why not Luke? And they told me something about cool hand Luke back then, and they didn't want me to fight through school or whatever. I'm dating myself. But anyway, I'm hoping that my name will be Luke in glory. And so what will your name be? We don't know. But here's the more important question. Will you be there? Will you be there? And you might say, oh, Pastor Mike, I hope so. I'm trying. Listen, wrong answer. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us, your pastor included, we've all sinned and we all fall short. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. Physical death and spiritual death. Okay, so that's the bad news. Here's the good news. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the good news. And so here's the gospel, as clear as I can say it. God became a man. The word became flesh. He dwelt among us. His name was Jesus. One with the Father. Never sinned one time. And the reason he never sinned was because he was God in the flesh, but also he was a perfect lamb to be sacrificed for our sins. Just like they used to sacrifice lambs in the old covenant, so Jesus came to, to initiate the new covenant as the lamb of God. He hung half naked on a cross and absorbed our sins in his body on the cross and absorbed the wrath of God so that you and I would never have to experience the wrath of God. He bled, he died, and some people said, good riddance, he's gone. But on Sunday, he got up and walked out of the tomb, victorious over sin and death. And he says, come to me. And so if you're here today and you don't know where you stand with God, I encourage you to come to Jesus Christ. He's the only way for salvation. Get your sins forgiven. And so if that's you today and you're not sure where you are with God, listen, we don't fault you at all. We don't look down on you. All of us were there. So if you're here today and you, you, you're not sure where you are in your, in your relationship with God, but you know that you need Jesus and you wanna receive him and his forgiveness. I'm just gonna ask you just to stand where you're, where you're at. We're gonna encourage you. We'll just wait for just a second. Just stand if you want Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Uh, just stand to your feet and I'm gonna, God bless you. And let's, let's just stand and remain standing. Let's encourage these people as they stand up. That takes a lot of courage. I, I commend you for that. Just stand and remain standing. You say, Pastor Mike, I don't, I'm not sure where I am with the Lord, but I, I, I know I need Jesus. I know I need the forgiveness of my sins and I'm persuaded he's the only way. Will you join? God bless you in, over there. That's awesome. Awesome, awesome. Church family, be praying because lots of people struggle during this time and it's a little kind of awkward standing up publicly before people. Uh, but just, just be praying for those who need to make a decision this morning. Anybody else want to come to Christ? You'll never, ever regret it. Now here's the, here's the closing of the invitation. Is there anyone here that you know, you know you're a born-again Christian, but you so, you're so far away from the Lord. You're not living for him. And you need to come back today to the good shepherd so you don't get picked off by the enemy, the roaring lion. And you wanna rededicate today. Um, you can join these people, just stand to your feet, and we'll include all of that in one prayer. Just stand wherever you are, and we'll include you as well. Anybody at all? Okay, great. So I'm not gonna push this, but one more time, can we just um, commend these people for their courage today? Like really commend them, guys, because this takes a lot of courage. That's awesome, that's awesome. So you guys can be seated, you guys can be seated. And so here's how we're gonna close the service. I'm going to pray out loud, and those of you who stood to receive Jesus, pray in your heart. You can repeat the prayer after me, um, or you can um, just say your own prayer from the, from, to the Lord. He knows your heart. Um, and so I'll do that. And then um, 
Pastor Will will come and close us out today. And so just say something like this in your heart. Dear Lord Jesus, I am so sorry for my sins and living apart from you. I thank you for coming to this earth to seek and save those who are lost. And today I recognize myself as one of those lost sheep. But I'm running back to you, good shepherd. I'm running into your arms. I receive you this afternoon as my savior. Please forgive my sins. And I acknowledge you as my Lord. Please be master of my life. I look forward to seeing you face to face someday. But until then, I pray for strength to be a lifelong follower of Jesus Christ. It's in your name I pray. Amen. One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com. Click on Home, then Knowing Christ.